Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Larissa Whitaker. I'm Steven Stahoski. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. Thank you for listening to us for our latest community update episode that we are bringing to you right now. As we were about to uh, go live oh, on the no. mics here, <laughs> we uh, were thinking about the big series that we've had from this past year, uh, whether it was the campaign diaries uh, that you and I produced uh, yeah. as better part of this past year, as well as uh, finally dropping the first season of RPG Decades in November and December. Yeah, There's exciting. been a lot of fun stuff. Who won that? Lucas Gerke. Oh, wow. <laughs> It looks like I'm out 20 bucks. <laughs> and Lucas managed to go undefeated, but two of his games were decided by a single point. <laughs> figures oh, i did hear about the game night because we, we we did manage this year to get you ben into magic mm-hmm. um so i did hear about game night which was just edh all night long <laughs> yes it was sure. and two uh, games two yeah, games. well with six players two games could take a hot minute six and then five and then the second one was made much more interesting by a gravitational shift that essentially divided the table it was a thing of beauty i want to slow down for a moment for the uninitiated or <laughs> for like myself the newly initiated what did you say the edh edh so edh is the old way of referring to commander it was elder dragon elder dragon highlander ah, ah yeah that's right there highlander. can only be one there can only be one um so it was it, it that's what became the commander format which is your you've got your legendary creature that is the commander of your deck you've got 99 other cards you cannot repeat names except for lands basic mm-hmm. lands right yes this is why we did the storytelling of the storytelling of deck building last season because we're less than four minutes of tape in and we're already talking about magic the i know it's the worst <laughs> but we're not we're, we're only going to talk about it for the next 30 seconds 30 seconds because <laughs> we're going to be done now um so that was that's edh so some some people still refer to it as that uh some people being me i guess i'm sorry i have not actually been home today i came straight from work uh and my work uh shout out to them they they threw me a they don't listen to this but i'm gonna shout them out anyways (laughs) uh they threw me and my wife a quick little baby shower at jk's Uh, it's wonderful so podlaski shout out to podlaski llp they don't listen to this but my my job you know working a law office can be tiring but when you work for good people it makes it better so true of all jobs so i came straight from there and i'm feeling a little frazzled just why i've got a quad shot Espresso uh, in front of me and 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 food. So. An elephant gun of caffeine straight <laughs> to the dome. Like straight to the dome. <laughs> um, and and we'll see if that actually helps anything or not. It's been uh, just a blast getting to produce uh, so much new material because we realized with the uh, end of last season and our Tomb of Horrors episode that that was simultaneously our thirtieth episode just by our standard episode count but also our 50th overall, including everything from Campaign oh, Diaries cool. and RPG Decades, and I think even the trailer gets lumped into that. Factory and overall. We cooked the books a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Or at least it's how it shows up on the hosting site for our podcast, which is wonderful. Which is cool. And again, you can find all of that at storytellingbreakdown.com. So the community update episode has looked different every year that we have done it. The first time that Caleb and I did it, it was our first opportunity to talk about RPGs in the podcast, and boy, look where that went. Hmm. Then... Last year, it was our first opportunity having you both on as hosts, uh, joining us talking oh. about our year in media collectively, and now here we are one year one later. year later. An anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> With yet another new concept as we uh, did what's probably going to be the name of this episode, the Storytelling Breakdown Movie Share of 2023. 
I will kick it over to someone else who would like to explain kind of how this came about and of course what got shared with how whom. Did this I don't even come remember about. how it came about. I got this idea from a friend of the podcast who got this idea from other podcasts. So basically, the idea is this: we pulled each other's names, Secret Santa style, and then whoever you got, you gave them a movie to watch, framing it as one that they would not have seen on their own or may not have seen before, and rotate it around. So to start. I pulled Ben's name, and I gave him Patterson. And then I got Stevens, and mm-hmm. I gave you Inside Man. I almost didn't give you Inside Man, but then you, decided you to were going to give me something Man. else, and yeah. then you gave me Inside Man because you came to the understanding I was going to have to watch it with my wife, and the other one she would not have liked. No, not at all. <laughs> um, and then I gra- I ended up pulling Caleb, and so I gave Caleb Casablanca because yeah. classic movies. Classic movies, not on my radar. As much as they should be. And speaking uh, of classic movies. Yeah, and then <laughs> I, I pulled Larissa, and I, I got to show her the wonder of Tropic Thunder. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> A rhyme. <laughs> oh, man. So we've got, we've got an interesting basis, because we cover, you know, a sort of slice of life movie and then we move to a you know heist classic film of heist the highest movie. order yeah. Yeah. well uh, it, on its surface it's a heist movie yeah and then we have you know one of the classic all time hallmarks of cinema and we have Casablanca <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on a minute <laughs> you say you, okay we'll get to that <laughs> To do these in, we could go chronological by when films came Roll out. Roll a die. Get a, we could, get a okay, D4. Yeah. There you go. We, we play D&D, right? Grab a we D4. We should start making all of our decisions this way. We make all decisions based on the dice. Eventually, we just become Two-Face and everything is chaos. Uh, I, I, I just keep a like D20 in my car and when I get to you know intersections I'm like all right which way am I going Are you <laughs> <Joshin>? <laughs> yes I'm not gonna drive Uh-oh. like that. I would die well, you'd be what, in a stoplight maybe this I want to go we, so oh. who rolls oh, highest we all yeah we all play we all actively play D&D so we're each gonna roll a D20 highest roll is the first movie that gets talked about wait wait wait, wait wait is it your the first roll you talk about the movie you watched, or yes. you talk about the movie you told somebody else to watch. The movie you watched. Okay. All right. So here I we got go. Twelve. I got Crit a two. Fail. Natural one as well. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> we are going kidding. in chronological order. <laughs> well, I guess you get Casablanca, my guy. We'll we'll open it up with Casablanca, which I'm very I'm very happy you chose this because it's always been one. This is like one of my father's all-time favorite movies. It's between this and The African Queen, so he's a big Bogart uh, Humphrey fan. Bogart. Yeah. Uh, but I've just never gotten around to watching them, so. You know, it was about time. 
that I finally got to this. You know, I'll be 100% honest with you. Casablanca is one of my all-time most favorite movies. It might be my most favorite movie. It did not start that way. Yeah. Well, before we dive into a discussion of Casablanca, for those of us, admittedly, such as myself, who have never seen it, can you tell us what the movie is? Who yeah. directed so, it? What's it all about? You know, we'll just at the top spoilers for all the movies we're going to be talking about. But um, to be fair, you've had since World War II to watch. You've this had one. since 1942 to watch Casablanca. There you go. Casablanca takes place in the city of Casablanca in French Morocco uh, after during World War II. So the Nazis have invaded and conquered France. They conquered France, and then the colonial governments that of all of the territories that France controlled outside of mainland France capitulated to Nazi regime. So the Nazis didn't have to conquer Casablanca. They just got it de facto when the French government fell after they marched into yep. Paris. So it's like sort of under German occupation, but like self-governed by these, you know, pro-fascist, Vichy France. Vichy, Vichy France, yeah. And it follows Humphrey Brogart's character, Rick, who owns this bar. This Rick's saloon. Café Americain. Yes, in Casablanca. And he is an American, but he's been, you know, he hasn't been home in like a decade or something he's been off in europe doing i love the character of rick gun smuggling i do he's probably the best part illegal things i agree i think bogart is the strongest part of the movie but it's all right so we're gonna get into my thoughts on we'll it. get into the thoughts let's because just get this casablanca is billed as a historical romance effectively but it was a, it was a propaganda movie it was a war yeah. propaganda movie so the, the bad guys are the nazis the good guy is the the lone american tough guy who helps a, uh, Czechoslovakian. Anti, a Czechoslovakian freedom fighter and 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 leader get out of Europe and to, to America. America. So because Casablanca was controlled by the French, you could go from France to Morocco and to Casablanca, but then getting out of Casablanca was very difficult. So Casablanca actually legitimately was a hub of refugee traffic. And from Casablanca, theoretically, you could get to Portugal, which was free, not fascist. And from Portugal, Lisbon, you could get to the U.S. The difficulty being it was easy to get to Casablanca. It was very difficult to get out of Casablanca, which I think they say multiple times. So the movie opens and there's people, you know, selling their diamonds, their jewelry so they can make enough money to buy exit visas on the black market. essentially. Mm -hmm. And in the very beginning... There's this character, this slimy character, Ugarte. Ugarte. Um, who gets a hold of these, like, very high-level exit visas. They're signed by Charles de Gaulle himself, who was the, you know, head of the Vichy France government. And he gives them to Humphrey Bogart for safekeeping, but then he gets, you know, captured and killed it's by my favorite, One Nazis. of my favorite lines. He, Ugarte, he gives, he hands over these, these uh, letters of, of passage to Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick. And Rick agrees to hide them in his cafe. Later, Ugarte is being hunted down by the police, and he comes to Rick, and he goes, save me, Rick! And Rick goes, I stick my neck out for nobody. He creates this persona of being a total loner, and he's only in it for the money. He's, he's very kind of Han Solo-y, in a way. Yes. Um, we felt some of those vibes throughout, just like some of the, especially once we get to uh, the relationship between him and Elsa and just yeah, their back Ingrid and forth. Bergman. Yeah, oh. it, it felt kind of Han and Leia-ish. Like a you little. could see, like you could see like to one extent where like Lucas would have been inspired by this, but then maybe even more so Kirshner and just in yeah. some of the episode five dynamics. I think so too. Yeah. Rick sets himself up as a uh, neutral party. He's just there to run his cafe, make his money. He doesn't care about anybody else 
there's a great there's another really great line where he's sitting at he's talking with his barman Sasha and he and Sasha this girl comes up and she goes where were you last night Rick and he says that's so long ago I don't remember <laughs> and she goes will I see you tonight and he says I never make plans that far and ahead he's very much a man of the he's present just, yes locked right in mm-hmm. right now um, so I mean Rick's really I really like that actually that's what you know uh, it's like I can't remember yesterday and I'm not looking to tomorrow it doesn't come across very nice oh. uh, the way he does it He's well, very cold. Yeah. <laughs> you can. How did I phrase it when uh, uh, we ended up doing a, a rewatch? Because <laughs> my first viewing ended up being very recent as well. And uh, you can talk anybody if you sound like Humphrey Bogart. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he's brilliant at it, too. All about delivery. So effectively, he's running. He's running Rick's. He's got these letters of transport. People kind of sort of know he has them. There's mm-hmm. a German attaché that shows up. Yes. The German political attaché shows up at one point. Commandant something. Heinrich whatever. Strasser. Heinrich Strasser. And then this Czechoslovakian freedom fighter shows up too with his wife. And that's when things get interesting. Because Is there an affair? Well, yes. Y- yes. Because this, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. That's where, the, that's where the line, the famous line of all the gin joints in all the world, she had to walk into mine, comes from. It's a great line. Yes, Bogart and Ingrid Berman's character have a Elsa. past. Elsa. Yes, they have a past. Um, oh, so he is then disrupted from the present. Like there is something about is. him that is no longer untouchable. Yeah, so you find out, you know, over the course, there's a you know extended flashback years ago when... Yeah, like if you had to timeline it, probably 1937, 38. So Nazi Germany is coming to power, but they haven't marched into France yet. Apparently, years ago, Elsa's husband... Victor Laszlo was captured by the German government and put in a concentration camp. And she thought he was dead. Mm. She ran to Paris and she met Rick and they very quickly had a very fiery love affair. Mm -hmm. And then the day that they're trying to get out of Paris, the Germans are coming Rick and his piano player and loyal friend, Sam, Sam played again, Sam. They're at the train station and he gets a letter. He gets like a, a telegraph from Elsa and she leaves him there she's like I can't come I can't run away with you yep even though though she'd promised the night before that they were going to leave Paris together on the Mm -hmm. train because she found out that day that her husband was not actually dead and that he had escaped he escaped (gasps) and so he's in Paris and so the love triangle so it gets very complicated so then they all end up in Casablanca and Rick is pissed. He's well. He's real pissed because <laughs> he's hurting. Yeah, yeah. He puts up this front. It's the best part of his character. He puts up this cold, nonchalant, non uncaring, uh, suave, tough front. It's all bullshit. All bullshit. It is. Yeah. Because when you know the first night that they come to the club, you know she and him have a little back and forth. But then later that evening. He knows she's gonna come back to the club, and he's just waiting there, blitzed out of his head. Yeah, he's drunk. He's he can't keep us. He can't keep it together, man. He he the the line played against Sam. He, he Sam is still there, and he's like, Rick, let's go. Let let's get out of here. Let's go find another town. We we know this game. We know how to do the the restaurants thing. Let's go. Let's go someplace else. We can go anywhere in the world, Rick. Let's go. Well, you don't need to see her. You don't need to do this. And he tells Sam, she's who's bad a piano luck player. For you. She's bad luck. Yeah, he does say that. She's bad luck. And he tells uh, Rick says to Sam, the piano player, he says, play it again. If she can hear it, and uh, so can I, they have a song. 
together. They have this song. It's a great tune as well. So uh, Rick still has this dream that Elsa is going to leave her husband and come back what. to him. At this point, he doesn't know she has a husband. Yeah, he doesn't know why she's... She, so she didn't say why no. she no. left? She, no. just, she gave him a telegram that just said, I can't come with you. You'll Our never see me again. limited in like, the number of letters I and thought whatnot it was handwritten. It, it was handwritten, yeah. But it was delivered on the platform. Why didn't she just tell him? That's a good question. I don't like Elsa very much. She's not... She's not the nicest. She's not great. Because <laughs> yeah. my first exposure to this movie comes by way of a poster with, I think, 101 greatest movie quotes that was hung in the classroom of one of my high school English mm. teachers. There's Shout like out to Mrs. Spohn. I've seen that poster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like three, three, three or four yeah, quotes least. from Casablanca. Are and on, on this watch, the observation that came to mind, in addition to keeping an ear out for each of those quotes as they, as they came by, was just to what extent there are some beautiful visuals, the rain coming down on the telegram being one of them or the uh the other thing that stuck out to me was just the pacing like it just to what extent it feels like casablanca really moves throughout if you haven't seen it and you're thinking old movie it's not old and slow it, no you are getting a lot of information there's a lot that and, happens and there's a lot of yeah constant uh changes and just uh, the dynamics throughout that make it really interesting my thought viewing it was that it felt very much like a stage play just put to film and that makes sense because it was based off of a play Joan Allison's unproduced play, Everybody Comes to Rick's. Huh. And that makes a lot of sense to me because there's not very many locations in it. No. Most of it all takes place in Rick's, and then there's a few the other part, locations. Uh, the airfield, uh, and there's the not blue much parrot. And yeah, there's not a it's ton of action. It's pretty much just dialogue between So characters. at some point, the German attache comes to Rick's, and they're like, we know. So Ugarte was re- arrested here. We know that these he had these letters of transit. Um, they're trying to pressure Rick. And it's when you start to discover more about Rick because the Germans have a dossier on him, and you find out he fought for the loyalists in the Spanish Civil War, so he fought against the fascists on the losing side. And he, he ran, ran guns, guns to, to Ethiopia, Ethiopia, the losing side against the, the fascists. invaded them. The losing side again. So he's got a bit of a soft spot, maybe kind of an underdog complex. And then you start getting this information about him and Elsa, and in the end, Victor Laszlo has come to Rick, and he says, I know Elsa loves you, it doesn't take a ma- it doesn't take it would take a blind man not to know it but i need you to i need you to help me well he's her husband is willing to sacrifice himself he's mm-hmm. like the nazis want me i can't get out of here but you can take my wife and the two of you can escape yeah victor's act- victor is a good man and he cares about the people he cares about his cause but he's actually a good man through the whole movie you've got this kind of smarmy double dealing french police chief louis talk about louis cuz louis I love is my louis. favorite character he's one of my movie. favorite characters agreed but in the very end, uh, Rick, he kind of agrees. At first, he agrees to, to disappear with Elsa. And he sets something up with the Germans to arrest Victor Laszlo. Sorry, we are getting... Elsa cool. and Humphrey Bogart do reconcile eventually. She comes, get, to, she comes to him one night, and she's like, you're going to give me those exit visas. And he's at like, gunpoint, he yeah, says she this. She takes a gun goes, out on him, and she she's goes, like, yeah. you're going to give them to me. And he's like, no, I'm he's not. He's like, no, I'm not giving them to you. I don't but care. But then eventually, they reconcile. They reconcile. Like, we do love each other, and we'll always have Paris. But at the very end of the movie, Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, pulls a fast one on the Germans, holds the German commandant at gunpoint, sends Victor on the plane with Elsa to the United States. And he shoots the German commandant. He kills him flat out. And the whole time, Louis, the, the French police chief, is standing right there. At the very beginning of the movie, when Ugarte was, was being searched for, you have a scene where Louis says, call up the usual suspects. And they round up all of the degenerates and all of the instigators that are on everybody's watch list. They question them. The very end of the movie, 
when the other police arrive on scene. Louis and Louis says, has seen the murder take place. Louis has been a first-hand witness to the murder of this German officer. He looks at the policemen who have arrived on scene. He says, Heinrich Strasse has been shot. Round up the usual suspects. And the very last line of the movie is Rick saying, you know, Louis, I think this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. All right. And now we're going to get into my hot takes on Casablanca. Okay, I want to know. I want to know. <laughs> because I don't think this is a romantic movie. I think the romance doesn't matter at all. The romance is secondary. The it main is. story is about the relationship between Rick and Louis. Okay. All right. <laughs> I think this is a story about male friendship. Ooh. Yes. Because. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, in the slow introduction, the first two main characters introduced are Rick and then Louis. Fair. All right. And True. that's long before Elsa and Victor even show up. And there's like three or four main interactions. You have that first interaction between Rick and Louis when Rick is like sending his girlfriend away. And he's like, oh, you're so cold. You don't care about anybody, Rick. Oh, no, like, I think Louis's actual, his, his, his true response more is, uh, how can you afford to throw such beautiful women away? Yeah. And do you think I can get in on the yeah, second action Yeah, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebound. I'm going to get her on the rebound. <laughs> they have a big, they're friends. They it's have hilarious. They do. They have, they have a relationship for sure. Um, but then throughout the movie, Louis is always needling Rick because he doesn't believe that Rick is this cold, unfeeling man. His, his line, he's always like, I bet you're a sentimentalist at heart. You're a real sentimentalist. Yeah. So he tests him throughout the movie. And Louis, Louis is kind of smarmy. I mean, he's the... He's literally holding a young couple. They're, he's holding their exit visas over their heads so that he can sleep with the young man's wife. Yeah. And Rick... Gross. Fixes... Yeah, uh, so, Louis so kind of gross. He, he, but Rick fixes... Because it he is, sends... 100%. He has this setup, and then he sends the woman to Rick, and he's like go talk to Rick. He'll help you out. And all the while he's watching in the bar, this interaction. So the woman goes to Rick and, you know, tells him this whole sob story. story of their leaving Bulgaria and they just want to get to America. And she's like, and, and Rick, if plays I do off. a bad thing to save me and my husband, do you think that's all right? And Rick, you know, he brushes her off. He's like, just go back to Bulgaria. Like it's not worth it or whatever. Meanwhile, her husband is playing roulette roulette in the gambling den that Rick has in his saloon. And so, they finish their conversation and Rick goes back there, spots at her husband, and then goes over to him and he's got this tiny amount of chips left because he's been losing. He's like, 21's a lucky number. You 22. Should put 20, he, he, looks at, he looks at the guy running the table the first. Dealer. The dealer. running the real works table, for him. Right. And then he, then he says to the husband, put it all on. 22. 22. So he does. And then the and it dealer hits. fixes it and it hits on 22 and he's like, leave it there. And it hits again. So he's got this massive stack of chips now. And he says, take your cash and get out of here. So he, he fixes it so the couple gets enough money that they can buy it. They can pay off Louis. <laughs> right. And so then Louis goes up to him and he's like, aha, I knew you were a sentimentalist. That's why I sent them here to talk to you, to prove that I was right about you. And uh, Rick blows Louis off. Rick as blows him usual. off. He's like, oh, I don't care. Whatever. I stick my neck out for nobody. He says that line more than once in the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's one of his one of his things. You're telling me Casablanca is about Louis and Rick. Yes. And it isn't a romance. It was written as a, as a war propaganda film. It was also written quickly, put together as cheaply as possible, and its whole purpose was to sell war bonds. So it became a cinematic classic by accident. Yeah. In a way. That's what I was reading. But it makes sense because, you know, at the very end, Rick is going through this whole game where he's like, he, he pretends to the Germans and to Louis that he's going to sell out Victor and get him put back in a concentration camp and run off with his wife. 
So he's leaning into this idea of, oh, he's this terrible guy. Louis even says to him, he's like, oh, Rick, you're the only man with less scruples in Casablanca than me. Yeah, that's when right. He does say when that. He's telling him he's going to you know, sell out her husband and then make off with his wife. Um, but yeah, then at the very end, uh, when he shoots the German officer and Louis covers up for him, they become friends. Cause, you know, Again, he, he they covers, were already were, but... They already were, but now it's, it's, now he's it's willing a to cementing accept it. of it. Because yeah. Louis has this line where he's like, oh, you... Or I forget. One of them has says he's like, I picked a hell of a time to become a patriot. Louis says that. Yeah. Because he's he's willing, he, he, he says that right before the rest of the officers arrive. Mm-hmm. And then it ends yeah. with them going off to join the Freedom Fighters together. Because they have this, they make this bet at the very beginning with Victor Laszlo, the Freedom Fighter who comes in. Rick's, Rick bets that he's going to make it out of Casablanca. Louis bets he won't. And the bet is a 10,000 francs. And so then at the very end, when he escapes, Rick is like, you know, you still owe me those 10,000 francs. And Louis's like, well, that's going to pay for our expenses to get out of here. And he's like, our expenses? Yeah. It's going to be a start of a beautiful friendship. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yes, one of my absolute most favorite movies. Uh, and there's a lot of detail there that we, we weren't able to get into. Kind of like all of Rick's underhanded dealings selling his cafe to mm-hmm. uh, the blue the guy who owns the Blue Parrot, um, which is the, the competition in town. And... When Rick's doing, you you start to you see more and more that his facade of being a rough and tough guy is completely fake. Yeah, because when he's making those dealings, he's going. You have to keep everybody on. My whole staff has to stay on. They have to stay employed. Sasha has to stay behind the bar. You know, like you can't change Rick's. I'm just you're just getting ownership of it. Mm. That's part of the deal. So he's he really cares about people. He cares about his people that work for him. Um, is that what you like about the movie? I like, oh man, I don't know what I, I love that movie. When you gave There's it to so me, you things. said you liked it because you're a hopeless romantic. At the, yeah, at the end of the day, Aww. I love this movie because I am a hopeless romantic. But uh, I like Rick. I, I like the the suave, edgy character. I think it's hard not to like him. I love the the dialogue. The, the, the script writing was just, it's very witty because there's not a lot of action. They have to carry it on. The, the dialogue has to carry. And the performances. And the performances. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart is just brilliant. Pretty much every movie he did, I, I I love. Ingrid Bergman is gorgeous and and just amazing. Her character is awful, but she's an amazing actress. So she pulls the, the role off really really well. So that's why I gave it to Caleb. Yeah, well, and Caleb I, is a watcher of it. Like, is it a movie you think you would have encountered on your own without Stephen's recommendation? I mean, yeah, it's famous enough. You know, it's listed always Everywhere. near the top of the <laughs> yeah. greatest movies ever. So, but you hadn't watched it yet. I hadn't watched it yet. And maybe that is that stigma of like, oh, old cinema can't be as good as new cinema. But this holds up. I mean, this is is just as good. I as do, I do like I your observation that of it being against. feeling like a stage play. We started with what Stephen gave you, and if we end with what I gave you, we are bookending with suave lead taking it to the Nazis or. So, yeah, no, yeah. seriously. So, Actually, yeah, you yeah. are. So why we don't, should wrap so, around. So, yeah. so Stephen so, gave you something, you gave me something. Yep, yeah. So there's our progression. All right, so we'll move from. One Oscar-nominated film to another Oscar-nominated <laughs> film. <laughs> Two, this special edition. Three Academy Awards, including Best, Best Picture. Picture. And it's, yep. it's worth that. If you haven't seen Casablanca, go watch it. Yep. That'd be Probably, I think that's going to be our advice for most of the movies. I think so. About tonight, I think but so. But this definitely won. Because someone on our team thought it was worth sharing yep. for every single one of these. All right. Marissa. Oh, no. <laughs> from, Mike, from Michael Curtis to Ben Stiller. <laughs> With this film, there's some things that need to be addressed at the top. Yes. This movie only came out 15 years ago, but in some regards, you would think it was made 
50 or 70 years ago at least some of the things that really take us back to the past as far as how people are represented what we're okay with culturally some of the things that we encounter there like if I had just told you the story and what happens in the story without giving you any visuals to represent it wouldn't you possibly assume that there's no way that this was made recently because it's obviously deeply offensive but no it was made 15 years ago uh, Tropic Thunder is a movie about making movies that aims to be satirical um, as far as the ridiculousness of some of the players in the industry and some of the personalities you may encounter along the way um, that said it does also have Robert Downey Jr. in blackface which is very very uncomfortable for me the notion that we're adding a layer like it's taking place further down in the like I'm almost making it sound like Inception like the fact that oh it's not an actor doing this to play a part in a movie it's an actor playing a ridiculous method actor who for some reason thinks it's okay to do this in a movie doesn't necessarily make it more comfortable on watch through but the layer at the time was enough cushion to make it so again it, it was palatable yeah, to audiences right, right, to the it, point of being was, oscar nominated mm -hmm. as a performance yep. and what i find interesting too in reflecting on tropic thunder it sort of clarified where i stand on other uncomfortable performances in comedy and what i think makes me a struggle with Simple Jack or with Kirk Lazarus is that there to me is not enough distance between what we are satirizing or what we are making fun of doing and what we are actually doing because even though there is that added layer that he's an actor playing an actor doing blackface he is still in order to achieve that an actor doing blackface and the thing that kind of said it it was like the final nail in the coffin on the DVD commentary for Tropic Thunder, because Kirk Lazarus, played by Robert Downey Jr., has a line where he says he does not drop character until the end of the DVD commentary because the whole joke is that he is a method actor who has gone too far and has gone too far multiple times. And so Robert Downey Jr., who is not a method actor with that same approach, does also do, I couldn't listen to all of it, the first 20 minutes of the Tropic Thunder commentary in Black Scent. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I've never <laughs> actually listened to that commentary Definitely something we look upon job. differently goodness. in 2023. Oh, my word. Yeah, 2008 is a lifetime ago in a, in a lot of respects as it relates to that movie. I think it's... I'm glad that we are starting there because it's impossible, to I think, to have a conversation about the movie without at least referencing those. There are other amazing comedic elements and performances that still hold water. Oh, yeah. Like, we just have to... I think it's incredible. We have to address the multiple elephants in the room. Yes. I want to start there, and then we can work toward what we like about the movie. I'm really impressed by how much you could tell that they invested of their time and their resources to make this. I don't think that we see that in comedies. I'm not the first or last person to say that, but we haven't seen that in comedies lately. A lot of comedies that we've seen come out within the last five years, not all of them, but a lot of them, have been criticized for feeling like they are long like recordings of improv tried to be stitched together to make comedic scenes rather than scripting something comedic and going to do your best to make to like get a laugh out of the audience rather than it feels like kind of half but I think Tropic Thunder took a page out of out of old old true comedy things like Mer the Merchant of Venice come to mind which is also has its own foibles many taking some pages out of Shakespeare's book where it is a full show everything about it is uh, is done in a very intentional way 
as opposed to some of the more more modern comedies. And in, 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 in all honesty, comedy is one of those genres that just doesn't hit for me very often. Really? I, I love comedy. I'm weird. That's why I, put, I understand you I put you horror at the absolute most bottom of my list of things that I will watch. I'm so glad I switched movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yours, is, yours was going to be a little different. I, I right. did some research before I even agreed to yours. Um, horror is always at the most bottom of my list. I will never willingly watch a horror with very, very rare exception. Thrillers are different. Comedies actually come in like right above that. I will take a, a romance, a historical drama, fantasy, any of those kinds of things above above everything. Um, because I care I care about intentional character. I care about intentional script writing and storytelling. And I think and that me, can a lot be of the found times, in comedies, can, but I agree that it's not something that is recently, always... More recently, it's, it has 100% felt like this was a late night skit taken way too far. Mm. And as misguided or offensive as some of the elements of Tropic Thunder are, you can tell that they really worked hard on this movie. Like, oh, they yeah. put the budget up for it. There's some really neat explosions. It's an interesting plot. Like, they are definitely, at, like, shooting for the moon as far as what it was they wanted to accomplish. Is just the foundation on which some of those uh, ideas were built was a bit flawed. But the execution as far as the way that they made it both a movie about making an action movie but also like it felt like an action movie as you were watching it mm. without losing out on how many jokes they were trying to build in throughout the story i'm going to make a weird comparison here and it's continuing our stage play conversation <laughs> in that some of the best comedy can come from doing your darndest to pull off the performance that you've been set up for from the beginning and it just continuing to spiral into more and more of a disaster kind of like noises off because the rehearsal is the closest you see to that production working the way it's supposed to and as it continues to become more unglued act to act eventually by the time you get to the third act you're splitting aside laughing and you have something glorious Tropic Thunder kind of hits some similar beats because you see, okay, trying to make the movie, the explosion goes off Definitely wrong. The, the director's about to get fired. They try something completely outlandish to try escalated. to get a good movie. Yeah, and just <laughs> and blow up. And, and then by the <laughs> yeah. third act, they accidentally make a good movie because they give it awards buzz and have the Academy Awards at the end of the film. On the subject of making a guy blow up, the first watch through, <laughs> I knew very little about this movie going into it. As you should. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when, again, spoilers, of course, when the director takes them out into the jungle to uh, like harden them up for the actor to make the actors tougher for the job that they are trying to do and the director blows up. Uh, I just, I think my mouth was genuinely agape, like just staring, because I also was as surprised as they had ought to have been. But of course, because they are being these uh, grandiose performances of ridiculous actors, they all think it's part of the bit and don't realize the reality that they've encountered. And the one among them who's not an idiot, though, is still an idiot. And Kirk Lazarus is really the first one who's like onto it that, oh, he's really dead. This isn't good. <laughs> and because he refuses to break character, he's not telling them <laughs> he does tell them he just yeah. tells them in a, in a in, in care like there's in a universe. barrier of communication there yeah <laughs> the script is so smartly written I, this is my all-time favorite comedy i think this is hands down the funniest movie i've ever seen every time i watch it i just laugh my <laughs> off well and we give because of how much of directing is casting just to what extent like steve coogan Nick Nolte, Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> Bill Hader, and Tom Cruise. Danny McBride. Yeah. They are all 
perfectly placed. Jay Baruchel, like they they all are in the exact right parts for them to shine in this movie. On the subject of funny lines from the film, as uncomfortable as his performance is, Robert Downey Jr. as Kirk Lazarus does have, in my opinion, the funniest line in the entire movie. And it's when he is trying to, he is like lost in his portrayal of this character, as is Ben Stiller's situation where he gets lost in a character he's playing too. And the two actors, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to convince Ben Stiller to come back to reality. And he is empathizing with Ben Stiller's situation, saying, the same thing happened to me when I played Neil Armstrong in Moonshot. They found me in an alley in Burbank trying to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere in an old refrigerator box. And that's just funny. (laughs) 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 That's just a funny mental image. It's a funny situation. It's great when you consider... It's great when you consider RDJ's <laughs> personal history. Yes, it's re- yeah. it's even no, better when you consider RDJ's personal history. Yeah, no, like the, the setup, like the bad boy antics and everything they put in at the beginning. Like he and Jack 100%. Black, they're exactly where they should be. Yeah. Him yeah. with Toby Maguire in that beginning where they what, <laughs> the Devil's Alley. It's uh, really uh, creative how they introduce the characters because for those of you who have not seen Tra- Tropic Thunder, they introduce each of the main actors, playing actors, by showing trailers from their previous projects and giving like media highlights from them. Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr.'s Kirk Lazarus, and I don't remember who Toby Maguire played. He just played Toby Maguire. Yeah, he was They're just <laughs> Toby Maguire. Yeah. A named cameo. They were in an excellent trailer in the beginning, and I won't speak further because I want you to have the joy of watching it yourself. It's a good one. Toby Maguire, John Voight, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Lance Bass. There's some people in the movie just to play themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Tyra Banks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That lady who's on the TV um, at gas stations and also before you watch a movie, Maria Menounos, yep. she's in it, yep. isn't she? Yeah, Is I, she? I just caught that on this rewatch. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I don't remember that. I'll have to rewatch this. I I didn't get a chance. I barely had a chance to watch my assigned movie, so my apologies. Yeah, I have seen Tropic Thunder uh, a couple of times. Um, in the most recent time with Fraternity Brothers in various states of inebriament. That's not a word. But I was hundred percent drunk last time I watched it. You know, I do think RDJ's performance in its essence carries the movie. Like it does. It does. That, it wouldn't be the movie it is. It would it. not. And I think I to your point earlier talking about the Merchant of Venice, comedy is such a vehicle to deal with uncomfortable topics in a very digestible way. Because when you talk about, you know, heavier subjects, I'll point this cuz I mentioned this to Ben earlier when we were watching Casablanca because he brought up Hogan's Heroes and just the juxtaposition between Nazi portrayal and Casablanca and then you know in later things Mel Brooks his whole theory on like dealing with Nazism was he was going to make it so ridiculous to show just how ridiculous the Nazis actually were he'd make them buffoons because their ideology was so utterly stupid in real life and Tropic Thunder kind of hits the same beats you know I think it attempts those beats what they're trying to address that it's ridiculous to replace black actors with a white actor doing blackface, they still don't really have a space where other characters who live that experience are able to adequately address and reflect how uncomfortable it is that he is doing that. I think it's lampshaded more than it is effectively addressed. We didn't have, I think that's yeah, fair. And we didn't have this conversation on the podcast, but I feel like we hit maybe similar buttons I feel like you maybe had similar buttons pressed with this movie as you had watching Pam and Tommy. 
Yes, I was thinking about that on my way yeah. over here, Ben. Listen, people, quick <laughs> side note for Pam and Tommy. For those of you who have not seen it, Pam and Tommy is a Hulu, what would you call it, a miniseries? It's a Hulu miniseries, yeah. A Hulu miniseries about the sex tape made by Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. Now, when they made, I'm just going to give you the short and sweet because this is not a Pam and Tommy episode. The whole series is built around the idea that it was a violation of Pamela Anderson's privacy to make and release this sex tape because it was stolen from her house and released and reproduced without her consent. And then in making Pam and Tommy, which is a hard R show with reenacted scenes from the sex tape, they did not get Pamela Anderson's consent to use her likeness in that way. She's not a producer on that project. She had not worked on writing the project. They asked her if she wanted to be involved, and she said no. And they still made it and said, oh, no, how sad it is to take <laughs> advantage. So they, they, they did They did the, the very thing yes. they were arguing against. Yeah. Yes. God, yeah. I love Hollywood. But said, I'm arguing against it, so it's fine. Because I'm a, saying it's bad. Yeah. That's actually that's a very good parallel for Tropic Thunder. Yeah. I may end up putting this in a different spot before I teed up that segue. Uh, but going back to the just a couple things I wanted to piggyback on with what you were saying, Caleb. When we had that conversation about uh, well, when I brought up Hogan's Heroes and just the contrast between the drama and the comedy. Uh, it's a line in Casablanca when uh, they're referencing... It's like they're, it's undecided at this time or something to that effect, whether he committed suicide or was shot while trying to escape. And as soon as I heard those words in that order, my pop culture brain pulled out episodes of Hogan's Heroes where Colonel Klink is like being very vain and wants to host this lavish party for other German officers and wants the prisoners of war to be the, the wait staff and, and, and the cooks and in uh, the threat and the threat is or it's like the evening will go without incident or you will be shot while trying to escape <laughs> even the, yeah and played for comedy it feels like this movie has the mindset that it's an equal opportunity offender like have you heard comedians who make that line or like people right. who make that line that like it's okay i can say whatever i want because i, because I make fun of everybody equally yeah, well. i don't buy into that but i can see how that kind of mindset makes doing a, a lot of problematic performances in the backdrop of a problematic mm. film being made about a tremendously difficult and challenging chapter in our history. Here's how <laughs> having this conversation and again, having a very recent rewatch compared to when I would have first seen this, because it would have been not long after it came out. Yeah, so I it, remember being yeah. very young. Yeah, so, <laughs> or so 14 or 15 like years young. old. Seriously. And there is a, not a TED talk, but that was the, the joke of it uh, from the comedy music duo, Paul and Storm. Where they talk about <laughs> yep, where they talk about the uh, how did they put it the <laughs> importance of context in modern American satire, or more simply put, what is crossing the line, mm -hmm. and that a joke's level of humor needs to be strong enough to not be counterbalanced by its level of tastelessness so it wants to be on this side of the line for those who cannot yeah, see yeah. He's, ben he's is drawing a diagonal yeah, with yeah, his right, hand right Graph. so yeah so <laughs> you want to be above the 45 degrees it is even if it's real if it's really tasteless it better also be really funny if it's only slightly tasteless as long as it's funniness equals that you're still on the right side of the line what they used for that talk was taking one of the uh one of the aspca commercials that normally is set to Sarah McLaughlin really sad oh, music. Yes. Yeah. And so 
and, and all and all of the poor animals in those videos and their context was putting different songs under that visual oh, no. how tasteless is this <laughs> yeah and they ranged from not very funny but also not necessarily very tasteless to spectacularly tasteless all of this is to say the level of humor especially for a 14 or 15 year old seeing this movie at the time it felt above the 45 degree line well even for See, the oscar yeah, voting committee it was above the 45 degree line mm-hmm. now the level of tastelessness does not outweigh the level of humor even if the level of humor is quite it's strong. close it's real close oh, in, in some cases i think it skyrockets into the stratosphere of that line mainly when tom cruise is dancing like a madman at the end <laughs> oh my gosh there are many many good so yeah as many different thoughts as we have on this film can you tell me more about what inspired you to bring this to me in the rotation i just i know you like comedies I do. I love Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Oh, my goodness. The basic thought, you know, I wasn't even thinking of any of the the deeper conversations. I was like, Larissa likes comedies. This is, I think, the funniest movie I've ever seen. She hasn't seen it. There we go. It, and it was it was a fun watch it was time so, together. <laughs> there are some really good jokes in it. I'm also just thinking of how both of those movies, in some spots, make use of just cartoonish level of violence, whether it's when Stiller's holding up the remains of the head of their director and just, just latex and corn syrup <laughs> and, or and then the line that just popped into my head because talladega nights was referenced was uh when uh rest in peace michael clark duncan uh says we cut around the meat when they're trying to get the knife out of his leg oh goodness oh yeah no mid to late 2000s comedies are an interesting breed mm. yes they are yeah because you could there were a lot of lines you could cross and and did get crossed that people wouldn't even approach now. And and they also had bigger budgets as we were, as we were saying earlier. That's fair. I'm glad to have seen it. It was fun to watch together, and I think it helped me learn more things about my own perspective on film and what I am and am not comfortable with. And that Kirk Lazarus line about being what I trying to reenter the Earth here, trying to reenter Yeah, I just oh, can't you picture. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's just funny. Like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So yes. Oh, that and the that and the Jeff Portnoy line in the compound in the end where he says, We only have sixteen hours before they wake up. <laughs> Jack Black is, is yeah. phenomenal this movie oh, as well. Oh my goodness, yeah. I will I will forever hold Jack Black playing a teenage valley girl <laughs> in high, high regard. Uh, even Jumanji. Man's good at his job. Man's good at everything, man. <laughs> yeah. I just, like, seriously. Jumanji would be an exception to the criticism I was offering earlier of the current comedy landscape. Because you could tell like they put a lot of time and effort it, yeah, into well, making it, a giggly it, movie. Again, yeah. it kind of crosses. It, it scripts. It blends genre. Tro- Tropic Thunder really does, too. Mm-hmm. It's a blended comedy action movie. Yeah. Jumanji's movie, the same yeah. way. On that note, you gave Ben a movie. Ben! I gave you Patterson. Would you like to me to give the overview of it? Or Please do. You? Yeah, okay. absolutely. For those of you who have not seen it, Patterson is a 2016 film directed by Jim Jarmusch. It is about a man who is a bus driver and also a poet. And you sort of follow him and his wife through this. You mostly follow him through this quiet daily routine while he finds beauty in the everyday. And you sort of see these sequences where he's writing poetry and different images like pass him by. I watched an interview with Jim Jarmusch where he talked about the 
way at images pass by and over Patterson while he's driving the bus and writing poems in his head is sort of about how Patterson is sort of is about how Patterson is taking in the world around him and letting it wash through him and how he sees that the director sees that as part of the creative process where he's taking in all these things so that he can create other art outside of it but I just think it's a really beautiful movie and it's one of my favorite movies and I correct me if I'm wrong Ben Mm -hmm. but I assumed that it is not a movie you would watch on your own if not otherwise prompted yeah I I would not have sought this out or actually I think you were (laughs) actually why not I'll give full context uh because I saw the title and didn't know didn't know anything about it I'm thinking to myself Paddington didn't get autocorrected. Did <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Paddington. And that's, I kind of figured, I was like, huh. there's more context. It's like, there's more I'm context familiar. here. And rather than asking yeah. a, a question that makes me sound like an idiot, let's just Google this and see what comes up. And then from there, we were able to have a conversation where you pointed me in the right direction. It's Slice of Life, which mm-hmm. is not like any of the other three films <laughs> no. that we had uh, taking place over the span of a week. And it does a lot of interesting things. Like I, I was trying to, it's n- it is the slowest paced of the four as well. It's so gentle. Yes, that movie just puts me mm. at ease. Yeah, it's just nice. And but it is still able, even if the pacing doesn't change much, it's able to give you a really strong sense of where Patterson is emotionally and creatively, and kind of weave some interesting elements together because I. I'll lead with, again, what, what I felt the strongest about just elements that I enjoyed about the sound design. When he is writing his poetry, when he's in, when he's creating, when he's kind of like experiencing that flow state, which I think maybe the best explanation I've ever seen of that on film is in the movie Soul. Mm. And it's, so it's kind of like a live action version of, okay, what is this character feeling when he's getting to write his poetry? And whether it's the scenes when he's first composing it or when he's reading through something, you usually most of the poems, with the exception of the last one, in the film most of his poems you get to hear him twice Hmm. because you get the first read through where adam driver does a really good job of like putting the spaces between the words and it sounds like someone who's reading something as they're writing it out even if it's just like you leaving a note and making sure all the words are there that's how the first poetry reading sounds like impression yeah and then the second one sounds more performative it's a finished piece you get to hear the finished product and usually in both of those cases the sound design and the music are more interesting because whenever it's just him going about his day-to-day whenever he's at home like unless there's like diegetic sound like if his wife is playing music or something what's around him is usually just just quiet the sounds of his house the sounds of whatever street he happens to be on just ambient noise you occasionally get music And when you do get it, they use it in interesting ways because when he's in those creative flow moments, you're getting completed phrases. You're getting really good orchestration and nice blending of elements like acoustic guitars, full orchestra, uh, some kind of like synth pad or other things that are a little bit more subtle but kind of help to create an ambiance. And they are flowing at their cleanest and clearest when he's having those moments of creative flow. When he isn't, they get a little more dissonant. They're not working together. You might just have one element or a few of them, and it ma- and it makes you feel unsettled as he might in that moment when the creativity isn't coming or when the music's not there, when the creativity just isn't there. And you're back to just hearing 
what's in the world around him. So just from the sound perspective, I enjoyed that immensely, kind of how it showcased that aspect of the creative process, given how much time I spend in a creative process that's sound adjacent. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, I haven't seen many. I think I've seen one Jim Jarmusch film off the top of my head, but sound, it, from what I understand, he's very intentional about how he does sound in his films. Yeah. For the listener at home, my mouth is once again agape. Like, I, I don't understand. <laughs> there are certain things where you know how sometimes you encounter something that shows you how little you know about the world? I've watched this movie multiple times and never caught any of that, Ben. It's so interesting to sort of see it through your perspective. Well, and, I mean, this is I've had some background and training in sound design and audio for visual media. And when sound designers have done their job right, you don't realize they've done your, their job right. So that shows to what degree everything really works well and supports whatever visually is happening in those moments in the film. Well, I'm going to tie in. We're now going to move back from Casablanca to Star Wars and then back to Patterson. Mm-hmm. Ooh, so take me on a journey, Ben. Well, because Almost 100 years. <laughs> even Mark <laughs> Hamill will make fun of Harrison Ford whenever he does an impression of him by really just sounding as monotone as he can. And usually that's because Harrison Ford, when he's acting, when he has a role, when he's playing a character, he brings it. There's a lot of dynamics there, a lot of range. And then when he's not playing a character and it's just him, like unless he's... He's a pretty laid back dude. Yeah, it, it, like unless it's something well, that he feels particularly energetic about like talking about. So <laughs> He's a pretty I, laid back dude. Yeah, and I don't know if that's something that was a consideration because we're about to jump back to Adam Driver, who obviously plays Kylo Ren. In that there's, there are moments in the way he interacts in that the poetry. Kylo Ren or driver, Adam Driver, driver in, in referring, referring to him in Patterson. Okay. He kind of has some of that Harrison Ford kind of switch in energy because when he's reading the poetry, when he's having those creative moments, it's the biggest his performance gets. Mm. And then because I noticed it right out of the gate when it's like, oh, we're hearing him talk or have this poetry. And then like the first conversation with his wife where it's like, good, great, nice. Now, granted, part of that is also he just got off of work. You have no energy. Totally understand where he's coming from there. But there was just that massive difference between the energy you bring and how you speak when you're in your creative space as opposed to maybe just a monotone default when it's just a day-to-day interaction. And that kind of... Set the tone, and then they continued to lean into it because I think the one of the observations I, I said to you when we were hanging out a few days ago was just it's going to create an interesting relationship dynamic when the uh, the husband and the wife have completely different levels of whimsy because Adam Driver is at about a two percent and his wife is about a two hundred percent. I wonder though, to your point, Ben, about the what you were describing as far as how. What you're describing as far as how Adam Driver's performance shifts when he's in that flow state of writing poetry versus how he presents externally. Two things. One, I think that that points to or opens you up to this really beautiful inner world of his or how he's experiencing the world versus how it is presented externally. And two, on your thought about balance of whimsy and relationships, I wonder if part of why the two of them work so well is that she has lots of whimsy externally. And that whimsy is still present with him, but it's all internal. So yeah. it's like yin and yang where yeah. you got the whole white with a little dot of black and all the black with a little dot yeah, of yeah. white. Yeah, it's, it's, it's white water rafting and still waters run deep. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, that, that contrast uh, can work really well. I love Laura so much. And the other, one other just, again, shout out that I enjoyed immensely because, there, again, there's still, whether it's the pacing 
or just like this is not the action or the drama or something like like you're not going to think of this as you would a genre staple i'm going to put this movie on when i'm in the mood for this Mm -hmm. it's kind of if you go into it with a kind of similar lens of me of okay what am i getting myself into and finding out curious from there. yeah coming yeah from a place of curiosity and a place of omenness is a good place to start with this movie because it's going to feel different it also apparently uh wanted to write a casting love letter to wes anderson because i paused the movie and texted you when two of the passengers on his bus about halfway through the movie is are two college students uh, a, a girl and a guy and i immediately thought the girl looked familiar and then i'm doing the math i'm like okay, she was young in Moonrise Kingdom. Would she be this age when this was made? And sure enough, it was Kara Hayward who plays Susie in Moonrise Kingdom. And then I waited until they sh- a shot moved to him again, and then I had to laugh because the black hair and the glasses were still there, and she's talking to Jaron Gilman, who played Sam. And they are talking about... And they are talking about an Italian anarchist, of all things, mm. in their conversation on the bus. So just, it's interesting to hear, like, just... There's also given to what extent Patterson is an introvert. I can appreciate kind of the people watching element. Mm. And then you're just watching all of the craziness going on around you. And just seeing those two in that context was lovely. There's also all these beautiful, like strange repetitions, just like synchronicities you encounter in your life. Does his poetry have a specific style to it? Free verse? Maybe free vert, yes. If I'm remembering correctly, I gotta Goodness. think back. I did take a poetry class in college, but time. I have yeah. slept I ref- since then. I ref- <laughs> yeah, and I referenced an English teacher like an hour ago, who at this point in the conversation, if they're listening, would just be going, "Oh, come on." <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be fair, I avoided poetry as much as humanly possible. Really, I want as you singer, to watch Patterson as next. A, as a singer, it's like I'm, like I'm exposed to poetry in the form of verse all the time. And I just didn't want to study it further. Yeah, free verse. Mm. I had that right. Good <laughs> job, Ben. Well, and just, well, because I think of a poet like someone like Taylor Molly. Like, if you're not into poetry, he is an entertaining one. He's an educator yeah. Yeah. and also does not. Uh, I don't mind reading yeah. poetry. I just didn't want to study it. <laughs> there is there is such a thing as yeah. knowing too much about the technical aspect of something where it makes it difficult to en- just enjoy it. Mister, I'm going to drive you to this event and let me give you this spiel on these four famous Russian composers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. I enjoy it. <laughs> what was that? When did we do this? See, for you, it was know, probably we just a Tuesday. To, uh, <laughs> that was uh, Dracula. We were going to Dracula. Oh, that's when we were heading to Dracula. And I, we were listening to Pictures of Exhibition. Mm-hmm. And so I had to give you a spiel on the Russian Five. Yep. One of which was not a composer. Had to. <laughs> I, I'm obligated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need the context for the yes. music. Uh, oh, yeah, I do remember this. That's right. And it was a Tuesday, wasn't it? No, it was uh, a Friday. I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoy yeah. hearing like yeah, that. no, and that was I, I kind of had to put on my speech team brain for a little bit and just like, okay, let's appreciate during the movie. Yes, like let's appreciate this performance and this writing for what it is you do kind of have to, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of put on your artistic hat in a certain Mm. frame of reference of like, okay, I'm going to try to appreciate this both as a whole and then also dissect the sum of its parts a little bit. And and then at that point, I am not just me and my house turning on a movie for enjoyment. I did kind of try to take a little bit more of that, okay, let's dissect this approach. Yeah. 
On the subject of the artsiness of it, the person who introduced this movie to me really spoke to Patterson's wife, Laura, because she is the other main character that you see throughout the film. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, as he comes home every night, they chat. She's up to things. And what she was framed as to me was something of, you know how oftentimes when we see ladies in movies who are artsy and they're interested in a lot of different things, sometimes you get like a Phoebe Buffay, like those kinds of types that are a bit flighty, a bit spacey, but still fun. Um, There's a groundedness and a joyfulness to her character that feels, not to say that Phoebe Buffay isn't treated with dignity, but feels like it's being treated with more dignity than what we usually see that kind of person represented as where there's still like this groundedness to her while she has the whimsy of painting the curtains. She has this thing where she likes everything to be black and white patterns. So she's painting the curtains black and white with bleach. She uh, makes cupcakes because part of what she's looking forward to in the weekend is making a bunch of cupcakes for a farmer's market market to sell them. And she on each one has different patterns that she does in black and white. And all in different like patterns and motifs. Like it would have felt very Tim Burton esque, but it's not like she ever did them in a checkered pattern. <laughs> <laughs> she packs these cute little things in Patterson's lunch every day. This movie has been described a lot in uh, reviews of it as well. It really does seem like an ode to people who live with a bit more whimsy or to people who are artsy. It's been described as magical. Like there is just this real reverence given to the beauty found in the everyday through watching this movie. And I think that's why I enjoy it so much. It's one of the things that I watch that makes me feel like more of a person afterwards. Hey, from a guy who has seen nothing to do with this movie, it sounds like a really good, wholesome representation of just married life. Yeah. Like, and there's nothing I'll too always dramatic. Appreciate that. It's also been described to me as being able to spend a couple hours with pleasant people. Though there's one scene that might hurt you a little bit Uh-oh. because there's a mm. dinner where, what is it, she makes a pie yeah. <laughs> that the two primary ingredients are Brussels sprouts and, treader, and cheddar cheese. And I think the only Brussels sprouts I've had that I have enjoyed were cooked by you. Oh, really? Ah. <laughs> when, did, when did I do that? Was that for... Or, or it might have been Nicole replicating your recipe. Ah, uh, I did teach her a, a Brussels sprout recipe once upon a time. Yep. You From take JK's. the JK's? Brus- uh, similar to what JK's does, but for, for those of you who wish to have my recipe, here we go. <laughs> Parboil your Brussels sprouts, pull them out so they're not completely cooked all the way, let them cool or run them under hot water, uh, under cold water so they don't cook the rest of the way, cut them in half, blacken them in a, in a, a cast iron pan, then uh, deglaze the pan. Well, sorry, in, you blacken them in a, black, in a cast iron pan with bacon and uh, garlic, and then deglaze the pan. What is a, deglazing for those so, of us who are so, still learning uh, about cooking? As you're, cook, as you're cooking um, in, in really, really high heat, like in cast iron or, 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 or skillet, what kind of sort of sticks to the bottom and starts to caramelize and then, and then, and then burn? Um, is the glaze. Is, is to remove that, we call that deglazing. So usually you, wash you are. wash your pan. No. You, while <laughs> things are cooking, you add a liquid. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And that liquid breaks up all of the po- deposits in the bottom of the pan mm. and it pulls that flavor out. So normally you'll do that with, with something like sherry or white wine. In my case, it's a mix of white wine and a little bit of lemon juice. Oh. Then you pull all of that once that's that's uh, uh, boiled down a little bit and top it with fresh grated Parmesan cheese serve. I'm leaving that in just so if someone's skipping around in the episode, they're really, really confused. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my favorite way to cook Brussels sprouts um, because what's better uh, how do you make Brussels sprouts edible? You soak them in wine, burn the crap out of them, and add bacon. Mm. And because in and the cheese. movie, you could just... I watched it, and I was like, oh, the, he's 
struggling with getting this down because you only <laughs> see him take like two bites and each bite is followed by drinking like his whole glass of water. And she's just so excited. She's so proud because she's like, I know it's you love Brussels sprouts anymore. and I know you love like cheese. So I've made this or, very or, special or, thing or, for you. And he's it's really, trying that's so really hard a quiche at that point or, or, or a casserole maybe. But I don't think I'd classify that as a pie. She puts it like in like in a, a, in a pie crust. So yeah. it should be, it should be, it should yeah. be you should, no, that's a quiche. <laughs> that is a quiche. What about it's, egg? The egg is. Did necessary. she not put any egg in it? No. What? It's Brussels sprouts and cheese. It's in, in, in high, high crust. crust. That does not sound appealing. Oh, exactly. Man, rough. <laughs> See, I told you it would be painful. Some, if you added some eggs and maybe a little bit of breakfast sausage, <laughs> some red pepper flake, you can we make that. We have some edible. notes. I'll have notes. I have lots of notes. I cook, dear listener. I like to cook. Oh my goodness. I will say. As you know, I have not seen this film, but just the discussion about it. I think it has you'd been, like it. I think I would like it. I think it'd be kind of fun because just to watch. I think one. so many movies about artistic people, particularly male artistic people, have to, they focus so much on. Thank you. Uh, just darkness like yeah. there's especially in america nobody's ever okay no one's ever okay there's an obsession with you know the tortured, tortured artist, artist stereotype yeah. so a film that is very you know artistic in its premise and presentation yeah. having that sense of whimsy i think yeah. is that's a very enjoyable space you will to be feel in. that popping up in your brain because i will admit maybe in the first third of it i'm waiting for the axe to fall like where, right. where, yes. where, where does his wife get sick? Where, or no, no, yeah, where is the, where is the disturbed all. or broken portion of this person? Yeah, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. What is and wrong with this guy? And nice. mercifully, it's not there. That's yeah. that's yeah. Because I think this is so like rated. I think, is is like, <laughs> I think this is rated R for language, and that's basically it. Yeah. yeah? Yes, it says R. Yeah. Some language. Yeah. Some language. Wow. So they use the F bomb more than English, once. A little bit of French. <laughs> and now it has to have an R rating. Good job, guys. Oh, my goodness. Speaking of R ratings. That's going to be our segue into Inside is that our, Man. Is that going to be our segue? Because <laughs> I, I don't think either of us had anything. Yeah. Yeah. We can jump into Speaking Inside Man. Speaking of R ratings, it, it is rated R. Oh, right? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Like, what is Inside Man? So the Inside Man is a heist movie, sort of. It was an 06 release directed by Spike Lee. Uh, probably his most conventional film at that point hmm. um, I'll be I'll admit that I'm not super familiar with his whole catalog and then at the end of it you realize it really wasn't about a bank heist at all so it, it follows <clears throat> Denzel Washington who is the who is a, a detective for NYPD and he is the hostage negotiator and he ends up on the scene of a bank heist happening on Wall Street it's being led by Clive Owen's character who spends like 90% of the movie behind a mask mm-hmm Denzel Washington's like he's he's what kind of mask basically like a cloth here and then a cloth in front of the face yep. he said not trying to block his microphone right. and, the then whole, su- the and then whole and then and then usually sunglasses and a ball cap yeah so there's very like a, little like like classic yeah like this weird classic covering. robber kind of deal with and a bandana like a, like over a his painter's smock. Uh, yeah. yeah the way that the, oh, that his crew cool. gets into the bank in the first place they are posing as a painting company yeah. okay perfect painting. But then, they, you know, they pull guns out of their stuff. Which are not ah. real. <laughs> and you find out it's later so they are not weird. real guns. They say that, they so, say, ha. Ah. Yes. Ha, ah, get on the they, ground. They do everything the typical bank robber would do. Everybody okay. get on the ground. They jump over the teller's counter and everything. Everything you would expect a bank robber to do. And then they start perseverating. They start stalling. <laughs> mm. they're, they're making these ridiculous demands of NYPD. 
It's infuriating we want, Denzel like, Washington's for character. Like, yeah, everybody's hungry, so get us pizza. Literally, NYPD orders them pizza. And at the end of the heist, and I'll get into more of the detail later. At the end of the heist, they stole nothing. Sort of. They stole nothing Besides that was... Besides our time and energy. They stole nothing that was on record in the bank. Over the course Can of Can I guess this, what they stole? Uh, you sure. can, you'll be very sure. wrong. A crown. No. no. Jewelry. Sort of. Closer. Yeah. Oh, do they steal someone's ring? Someone who was there is a ring. the bank? It's very important. So there is a ring. Oh, look at my guesses. <laughs> that's not what they stole. The ring is still there. Um, a person? No. That'd be horrible. No. The ring is... I found it in a Cracker Jack box. Sorry, I'm back to Spaceballs. <laughs> and back to Inside Man. So... Nothing that's on record at exactly. the bank? Exactly. There was a safety deposit box that's been there. Since like since the bank opened, and you come to find out, it's the chairman of the bank's safety deposit box, Play, uh, Christopher Christopher Plummer. Plummer. Oh yeah. Yes. Who, by the way, is nowhere near old enough to have done what they claim he did in the movie. He's playing the older at the time. Yeah, like but he, he's, he's. I want to look yeah, up. He, he does not look he, ninety. He would have yeah, been, he like like been as old as he was in Knives Out. Yeah. An inside man. Seriously. Yeah. But that, okay. Beside the point, makeup. The makeup department didn't do enough. Okay. <laughs> the chairman of the bank sends in. This very mysterious, very confusing, Jody complete Foster. and totally, complete and total red herring of a character, Jodie Foster, a Wall Street fixer. Yeah, she she's like a power broker. Everybody owes her something. She's got sway over everyone so much so that she walks into the mayor of New York City's office completely unannounced and no appointment whatsoever, and nobody bats an eye. So obviously she's very important, but you could take her out of the movie and the movie would be fine. She's got some really cool scripting, some really cool interactions with Denzel Washington's character, but ultimately she does nothing to the plot. Is she necessary to pull your attention away so that the She's a red switcheroo... herring. That's all she is. Well, then she's she's important. She well, just... It, you... But the but Clive Owen's heist I haven't seen was it, but so I'm well planned that it didn't... <laughs> I'm not saying that the performance... I'm, the movie would not be nearly as good without her performance, but the story would have been fine. Well, uh, I could... You disagree? I'll pu- well, I'll push back on that a little bit just in the sense that, and I'm going to use the the onion metaphor given I just referenced Knives Out and then Glass Onion is another thing very recent in our headspace. I well, love it. Yeah. Like, well, so if you're, <laughs> un- if you're unpeeling the onion of what Dalton Russell and his crew are trying to an do. An actual onion? Well, yes, an actual onion. Like ogres. Yes. Multiple layers. <laughs> yep, yep. Like a, a metaphorical onion. Yes. yes. <laughs> if you're peeling back those layers <laughs> to get to the center, you kind of have to come at it from two sides because the cops are consistently following wrong thread after wrong thread. And that's the whole point of Russell. And then you have Foster hired by uh, Plummer's character to head directly for what the reason the bank robbers are there is and gradually unearthing things as we go. And eventually she and the cops meet in the middle. Yeah, but I I, I don't think you need... Like, the movie would have been... You, you could have written the story and not had that other side. That other side adds complexity and it draws your attention away. But it was it's not completely necessary. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. knocking it because it's a brilliant performance in the fa- on, on, on Foster's part. That said, it's a great red herring because it's completely distracted. You come to find out that... The there bank, is a crown. No. The bank owner, chairman, founded this bank. And in his safety deposit box are records of... Where the crown was before. Things he did for the Nazis. Oh, that's way less fun than a crown. And he, in the end of the movie... The bank was founded off of wealth he accumulated. Wealth stolen from Jewish people. people. 
So you yeah. come to find out all of the robbers are the descendants of the people who were victimized. Yep. And so Russell becomes, he's not the Whoa. villain, right? The so hero. The, the man robbing the bank is not the villain. He is, he is a wow. hero. He's not the main character either. The main character no. is Denzel Washington and the antagonist is the bank owner. And it's about, it's about the next generation or two generations removed getting vengeance for their ancestors. That's what the, that's the, that is what the movie's about. And showing, because like at the end of the heist, they can't prove that anything was taken. All the bank robbers who have never had real guns, no one's gotten hurt. They stage the execution of a hostage to get the police's, the mm-hmm. police to play ball. But that, that hostage was never hurt, never killed. And when the police finally move SWAT in, because they staged the execution to get SWAT to come in. They can't find any robbers. They can't find any robbers because the robbers pop smoke. The, the only thing they brought with them were toy guns and smoke grenades. They pop smoke. And join the hostages. And take off their costumes and join the hostages. But can't the hostages identify them by recognizing no, who because the other hostages are We, we skipped a detail oh. that when the robbers first broke in, they, they, they forced the hostages, the hostages to strip down and put on, put on the same getup as that. So everyone looks the same. And the other thing is people who were originally hostages were in on it. So they've been constantly switching people in and out throughout the film. Like in the beginning, it's crazy. It's crazy. When, when the hostage, when they first take my brain. people hostage, oh, this it's is a, neat. It's a brilliant little. You know, they, oh, it's I a, they don't want to do what the robbers say, so the robbers pull a guy out of the lineup, take him into a room, and beat the crap out of him. But they didn't actually beat the crap out of him because he was in on it. Mm-hmm. So this the, this Russell they like character, easy A esque, where the Russell <laughs> character, Clive Owen, honestly deserved. So much more recognition for this movie than he's it's got. A great role. It's yeah. a great role. It's so it's brilliantly done. He's he's smart. He's calm. He's and an amazing voice. Amazing, yeah. amazing voice for the for it. Um, and it, this is one of the movies that made me really reconsider some of the uh, press that was coming out because this came out in 06 and so did Casino Royale. And when Casino Royale came out, there was some press, not a ton, that were like Daniel Craig wasn't the right choice for this role. It should have been Clive Owen. And Clive Owen was being considered to play Bond, at least in the tabloids. I don't know if it was ever really a serious consideration. And until I watched this movie, I, I never really agreed with any of that. But then that I watched this and I'm like... You never agreed that Clive Owen should yeah, be Yeah, I don't think he would have made a better Bond than Craig. I still don't think he would have made a better Bond than Craig eventually did become. But he would have been a good Bond. Yeah. Mm. Right age and he was in The Born Identity. So there's, yeah, a, yeah. The, there's a couple of things that I, I would critique about it. I think uh, since it's a thriller and it's kind of a shell game, you're not really sure what's going on as a, as a viewer... When you do finally get all the reveals, it felt just a little bit lackluster. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we we know too much about the wrong things coming from Jodie Foster's side. Oh, and then when so you that's get why you have an issue with her? You feel like you put stock in thinking that story was going to pay off in some way, then you as the viewer no, feel cheated when it ends the up? I think the payoff wasn't as big as I thought it was going to be. Because hmm. the movie spends a long time setting up and jerking you around, for lack of a better way to put it. That when you do finally get the reveal and the payoff, it's not it's not quite as big as I thought it was going to be. Here's I wasn't disappointed, we, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't quite there. Here's a structure tweak that would probably help that, and that's the fact that one of the other ways that the film is kind of focused is you've got three point of view characters because you have Denzel Washington as Detective yep. Keith Frazier, and he's you've brilliant. got you've got yeah absolutely you've got Dalton Russell, and then you also have Madeline White, and. If she wasn't necessarily a point of view character, 
So she's still involved in the plot in a similar way, but then you're only getting Keith and Russell's pers- you're only getting Keith and Russell's perspective. Okay, who is this? And whose interest is she representing? And what is yeah. she doing here? That maybe makes her part of it more interesting. Because she, so. she doesn't no, realize she's working for the antagonist. Yeah, I and think, unpacking I think that is part of it. It's great. Like, don't. It is definitely. It was a great movie. It was loads of fun to watch. But there it was just that little hint in the very end. Russell runs into Detective Keith. Literally runs into him as Keith is is trying to muddle his way through the aftermath because they can't prove anything was taken. A, the police can't. They can't, they have no, they've got none of the perpetrators. They can't determine who they are. And so the, the case just gets dropped. No, there's, no, there's nothing to prosecute. There's nothing there. And it bothers him. And Russell runs into Keith. And Russell, and Keith, uh, the, the detective, of course, has no clue who he is because he's never seen his face. And in the process of running into him, he slips him a diamond. And I can't remember, how did he get the information? Because he has all the information. That was the same thing, right? He slips all of it to him. And so then they are able to bring up the bank chairman in front of the the war crimes committee for the United States Senate to get him tried for for war crimes back to World War II. Wow. And that's how the movie, movie ends. So it's really, it's a, it's a heist movie on the surface, and it's a great heist movie. It really is. But the, the additional human aspects, you know, you're rooting for the bad, for the quote-unquote bad guy, for the, the, the crook, because he's not bad. He's, he's, he's writing on, on a wrong. And then you realize that the, 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 bank, the bank founder is literal scum of the earth. So there's a weird perception shift as you, as you go through the movie. That was a really cool experience. Do people get hurt in the heist? Yes. Yeah, severely mildly. wounded or killed? No. <laughs> no, nobody dies. You also have... Get slapped like, around a one bit. Of the, yeah, one of the bankers <laughs> that's taken hostage was at the bank with his son, and his son is kept separate and out of everything else, and they make sure he has food. Is He's actually in the vault at one point, because why not? It's like, we yeah. have the run of this place. Sure, kid, hang out wherever you want to be. Playing his playing video his game that they didn't take away from him. Well, the, he's playing the, in Grand yeah, Theft yeah, Auto. Yeah, no, it's, just, it's absurdly violent, and, and, and Russell, the bank robber, is like, I need to talk to your dad about this game. <laughs> yeah, it's so they actually developed their, their own, own game. Yeah, no, dude, it like, wasn't Grand Theft Auto game yeah. to put on his PSP oh, yeah, for that because they didn't have the rights for. But yeah. it's based, it's essentially yeah. Grand Theft Auto, and yeah, it's absurdly violent. Well, for me, the best part about the film is the interactions between Clive Owen and Denzel Washington. Yeah, because they talk on the phone a All lot, the like time. the hostage negotiation. But then they like they do meet during the heist. Like yeah, but he's masked. Once. He's masked, but they are like you know in the same room, and then the multiple conversations he, over the phone. And he purposely antagonizes Denzel Washington's character to the point where he like goes at, like tries to tackle him. They get into a physical altercation, and and everything everything Clive Owen's character does is com- is completely planned out. It's completely meticulous. It's very that's the, he he claims in. The way the movie shot's really interesting because it starts with interviews with the hostages. And they're intercut throughout. And they're intercut throughout. Not Clive Owen. He was hiding. Yes. They build a fake wall in the bank that Clive Owen hides behind. And he's there for like over half a Over week. the course of the bank robbery, they're working on something. And you find out at the very end, in one of the rooms, they built a false wall. That That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Behind. And he stays there for like three or four days. Uh-huh. And then he leaves the bank with, with the, the diamond contents. that he slips to Denzel Washington and all the information they need. And after like a whole slew of loose down. cut diamonds. Like there's, there's, that's part of the hall. 
Based on this description of the film, Stephen, I am so excited for you to watch Glass Onion and circle back. I would like to rewatch it again and see if maybe I have the same problem with with Inside Man that I do with, with Knives Out. Because things like Sherlock Holmes, I don't have that problem with any of, like almost any of the iterations of Sherlock Holmes. I don't have that problem with uh, Hercule Poirot. <laughs> the, uh, the, the more recent uh, installments in that catalog with mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh or the older ones with uh, David Suchet um, and, and Emily Blunt and and uh, J.J. Fields. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that version. Death, uh, on, the Death yeah. on the Nile. It's, it's better than the Kenneth Branagh. But um, I'll go back and rewatch those. And I, and I don't know if it's because I, I care more about those characters or, or what it is. Something to think about. Isn't it interesting the things that we can better understand about ourselves through exploring what we enjoy about media? Oh, absolutely. I was watching actually a video essay on this today that was talking about Glass Onion and the fact that Ryan Johnson is a very, uh, what did they call it, deconstructionist filmmaker. He's going to take, especially when you have something like mystery that has so many genre staples oh, yeah. and tropes that you can pull on, magnify, and use to your advantage. Uh, and that deconstructionist style is in some cases an acquired taste for sure. I think we are definitely going to do this again. Yeah. Just oh, yeah. This was so yeah, fun. Yeah. And, and the fact that really the only qualifier was the person sharing the movie has seen it. The person you are sharing it with has not. Oh boy. And that was a fun. <laughs> Don't give me Caleb again. It was hard. What if we no, rotate no, backwards no. next time instead of drawing names? I thought like you we were going to pick the it. Three Musketeers with Charlie Sheen. I should have. I give me Caleb it. again. I've already got mine figured out. <laughs> so, in three shares from now, because by that point we'll be back to this configuration. Oh gosh. <laughs> gotta make him watch it sooner than that. We could pull again and just let fate decide. We could. Mm-hmm. But I, I we, we'll talk about it off the pod. We'll figure it out. While we spent this conversation bouncing around and talking about four different movies uh we're now going to spend the next 12 months or so on three
That was The Artist's Prayer from the Backpacker album by our dear friend Lucas Norton. Our spotlights are going to sound a little different this year. For a long while, we've wanted to tackle The Lord of the Rings, but where do you even start? Like, what so specific element do you really break down? Like an educated person, you start with the Silmarillion. Twelve hours. The Lord of the Rings, no. the scenes of power. For our monthly spotlights, we will be taking a look at one specific scene from each of the movies, or obviously a few from each as we go through, and we'll break it down, talk about why and how it resonates, and that starts today with the prologue from the first film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. So that's a no to the Silmarillion. That is a no to the Silmarillion. Oh, there's no visual adaptation of it, so... Which is good, because that would be impossible. We are going to pick... 12 scenes from the entirety of the three movies and Which is just talk why we about those really 12 watch scenes. all of the movies with you. But No, but how interesting is it if three people have seen all the movies to have one person who only sees those 3 minutes? Imagine the different takeaways. And that's you make a good argument. We bring no, <laughs> we doesn't. She should see them. Well, we know and we all bring in different perspectives. The lore nuts, the uninitiated, We'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, my god! I feel like yeah. Caleb's pretty up there on the lore, I'm too. I'm pretty up yeah. there on the lore. That's yeah, we're probably... I understood probably... what he was saying earlier when he was talking about the uh, his reign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for, for the super lore nuts out there, I do own a replica of the Ring of Barra here, which I wear pretty regularly. For the not super lore nuts who don't know what that is, uh, Aragorn wears a ring that signifies him as the... As heir. a special guy. As, As a, a special, special boy. boy. <laughs> He's the Which heir to the Aragorn? throne. We haven't met him yet. In He's what not in the seen. opening scene. Though his so ancestors talking... most certainly are. Yes. So, yeah, no, what we're talking about right now is, is the opening of the Fellowship, which we, we just took in um, off of the extended edition. So there's, there's some bits and pieces in there that are not in the theatrical. Um, for the most yeah. part, it's just the little, little battle scene when Isildur gets ambushed. And then tracking the... Oh, in terms of like what's not in there in the, in in the, the theatrical cut? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. That's pretty and much like... Because I realized I had not watched this version of the prologue since the last time I watched the extended version, and that was on VHS. So it's been a minute since I've watched the extended version yeah. of The Fellowship of the Ring, and so I was seeing like him putting on the ring in the ambush for the first time in a while. Because other... In the theatrical cut it just cuts from him getting knocked off his horse to Two arrows in his back arrows in the water, back in the water. Yeah. yeah all right well let's get into this opening yes please um i'm interested to hear your opinion on it larissa because it was I mean, a wild ride because oh sorry go ahead well all three of us have seen the movies many many mm, times yeah uh so it's kind of rote and you know i mean for me like once that once that musical beat hits mm-hmm. with the title sequence, that's I literally when I, get goosebumps. It's when my, my, my like blood and endorphins go, yep. oh, right, I literally got goosebumps while we were sitting there. Uh, yeah. Howard Shore is oh, it's a massive But how, what did it do a decent job of introducing you to this world? I mean, I think so, based on what little I know of the world. It's interesting coming into any franchise that's highly referenced in pop culture. Because while maybe in a fever dream many years ago, somebody else tried really hard to get me to watch Lord of the Rings, I don't have any working memory of it. Everything I think I know about it is based on what I've seen referenced in other things. So like when they said, that guy's Sauron, I was like, but he's not an eyeball. How's he become an eyeball? I thought Sauron was the eye. Do you want the answer to that question? I want to go along this journey, and if it arises, it does. But if not, I'm okay with living in ignorance. I really want to give you. Stephen's not okay with living in ignorance. 
<laughs> I will refrain. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, okay. To answer your yeah. question, um, as far as what was it like to be introduced to the world, I think that it does a good job of setting up the different factions, laying the groundwork, understanding that rings are going to be really important going forward. And if anything, the visual I felt most drawn in by was Gollum like hoarding that little ring inside that cave because I'm sure it was present in other moments throughout those first three minutes but for me that was the shot that sort of stood out as something that was conveying an emotion visually without necessarily focusing in on what the character was experiencing so the way he's isolated in the frame and like pushed far back into this dark and dreary place like how the power is sort of sucked all of his connection to because he started out as a human type creature right now he's this 500 old shriveled little monster Steven wants so badly to explain to yes. me. <laughs> you, 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 humanoid in the D&D sense, and let's yes. not go. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. trying, man. <laughs> he was close Great to what a hobbit is. Yeah, and to build on that, the Fellowship of the Ring does a really good job of only giving you glimpses and shadowy glimpses of Gollum, which make him... I mean, I remember as a kid seeing the Fellowship of the Ring and being terrified of Gollum. Of Gollum's creepy. Yeah. I like his voice. Because you don't like get... Well, you, and it's, Gollum's creepy. Yeah, and it's, and, well, it's Andy Circus. goodness. But they, they don't give <laughs> you... Because we don't get a full visual on him until two towers, I think. I mean, just the time it took to get... Like, and we talked about the CGI in our, our second episode. But yeah. just the way that... The prologue sets him up. And also, I mean, we were giving love to Clive Owen during the episode portion of this episode when we were talking about Inside Man. Oh, my gosh. Kate Blanchett has an amazing voice as well. Just her delivery yes. of every single one of Galadriel's lines really blends. The actress who does all world. of the narration for the opening is Kate Blanchett. She plays one of the most powerful elves. Is she the Earth. one featured in like yeah. all she's white the one, with yes, the long that hair? Is, that yep. is the Lady Galadriel. So she's in the, she is in that. She's one of the elves with a ring of power. Wisest and fairest of all creatures. <laughs> yeah. <She laughs> reminds Thanks for me rubbing of, that in. <laughs> of the ghost of Christmas Pre- the Ghost of Christmas Past, Past in the Muppet version of the Christmas Carol. Yeah, they look very similar. Uh, yeah. You know who she, uh, more similar is the uh, uh, George Scott version, Scott yeah. version yep. of Christmas Carol. That's the one I grew Ooh, up with. Oh, I believe you. I've very not seen much it. More. I love that version. That one's at least normal human size. But I love that one. <laughs> there is so much. There's so, so much crammed into that opening. Well, and you have to because I think anytime you try to adapt a large-scale epic fantasy book series there's a lot of glut that comes with that that you have to filter out yeah and you have, to, you have to you have to trim that down to get it here's thousands of years of history be consumable to an audience yeah but i think it does it spectacularly but um, with the the budget of these films right they weren't trying to just appeal to people who had i assume i know nothing to appeal just to people who had a history with Lord of the Rings, but to be a broad appeal as well, right? Yeah. In order to make the money back for how much it costs to produce yes, it, I'm sure. But also, well, they also, are working with one of the greatest works of the 20th century. There's a pretty large fan base for Lord 20, of the Rings, even mm, before yeah, the movies. Mm, 20th century. Because one of the, and I think I have this right, and we will, I'm sure, get to them in our scenes of power, the actors who play the two wizards came into the Lord of the Rings with completely opposite exposure experiences because Ian McKellen had never read the books 
He, he is, is Gandalf. the wizard we'll man. We will meet Gandalf. We'll yep. meet him. Yep. Is and he Magneto? Yes. 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 Yep. Okay. That's Ian McCallan. I know that guy. And so Not personally. He had never I'd read them. I'd be very intrigued <laughs> if we Right? He, like, yo. <laughs> he had never read the books, but was reading them like on set and like yeah. and really trying to get into the spirit of Tolkien as they're going through the process of making the films. In contrast, Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman the White, will also meet him. Bad guy. One of the wizards. Mm. Though not initially. <laughs> well. <laughs> but yes, true. bad guy. Uh, he would read the books annually. And so he came in with he, just, he and, he knew, and he met Tolkien. He knew Tolkien. Yeah. Oh my goodness. He wasn't like casual acquaintance. Like he knew the man by name and yeah. had worked with him before. You could call him by his Christian name. He could. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, yeah, there he was the only person on set who'd ever met Tolkien. The sheer volume of things that have to be covered in that opening mm-hmm. that are done so quite digestibly. I mean, yeah. You cover the, the the rings, what they are, the original rings of power, uh, without getting into all of the minutia of what they were built, how they were built, and, and yada, yada, yada. You get into the fact that some big, bad, evil force created his own ring that is everything bad, everything evil about the whole of existence is part of this ring. One of the more subliminal parts of the opening is that is the way they speak about the one ring. I don't know if you, if you caught on to this, but they speak about the One Ring as if it is sentient and it has it. It makes its own yes. decisions. It but is. I don't know if I caught that specifically because the opening. I'd have to watch it again more carefully, or if it's something that I just knew based on those pop culture references. Because I'm aware that the Ring, the is ring bad makes its own news. Decisions. The Ring corrupts. Mm-hmm. It corrupt. It actively Which attempts to achieve opening. bad. And, and it's it, it, evil. It is. But it, the opening does a really good job of not coming out and saying, yo, this thing is alive and is evil, but it talks about the ring as if you it speak about it. Gives it, it. Gives yeah. it yep. it gives it a presence. It gives it a presence. It gives it a personality. And it's, that's a really cool way to just well, listen. Well, what I like about the opening is it gives you all this information, but it does it through a means that would make sense in universe. Like the way the narration is written and the way Galadriel talks would be how people in the universe of Lord of the Rings would talk about yes. it. It's not, you know... When we last some, saw yeah, our it's like shoehorned yeah. like into it. It's more what, I, what oh. our car in the game up to this week. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I love, uh, the first three lines are echoed, are, are said first in Sindarin. They're said in Sindarin, in Elvish, before Kate Blanchett speaks it. In Translated. Yeah. That is And cool. she's the one doing the whispered Elvish. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, just, it was just a very cool effect. It's more immersive, like you are being mm-hmm. invited into a retelling of something that's real versus the fantasy that it is. And it gives you that the map visual of Middle Earth, which yeah. becomes much more important as you go through the rest of the series. And you're trying, okay, you and can remember that right, map this is, is important. Where we start, and we got to get all the way down yeah. here. And you get your first line of sight into Mordor, which I think we're used to a lot of pieces of media that give you. Good guys, bad guys, back to the good guys, back to the bad guys. There's not a POV character in Mordor. So nope. we see or for the char- any of the villains, really. In- we do get some okay, Saruman and Two Towers. Saruman, yeah, a little bit. Is Saruman and Sauron two different dudes? They yeah. are. Yep. <laughs> Why did they name them almost the same thing? Well, what Tolkien would give you do? a very, very long explanation about how they're not the same thing because Tolkien was a linguist. 
Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> the prologue does a really good job of the, giving the, you necessary the information. Prologue, <laughs> actually, well, here's the thing. The prologue is the thing that's supposed to make you care. That's not our job. That's the prologue job. Mm, I don't think it's the prologue's fault that it failed. You, no. It failed? You still don't care? I care 10%, but I'm not like ah. three hours care. I'm like, tell me, answer my questions, care. Well, to answer your questions more, most effectively, it would be best just to show you. I'll fall asleep. I won't get the information. Well, I yeah, need. if we watch it now, <laughs> you'll fall asleep. <laughs> well, I guess in this... 10 this o'clock in the morning oh. when you're jazzed on coffee. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, my goodness. I think my favorite, my favorite part about the, the opening of The Fellowship is it sets the scope of what we're going to see. Because you get everything from just little character interactions, just the three elves or just the seven dwarves or just the nine kings, to the grand melee that is the battle at on the slopes of Mount Doom. That was a lot. It was impressive in scope and scale. It's like, this is what they're giving you in the first three minutes? What is and yet so to it's come? Like, yeah. It looks like they blew the budget already. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. Um, <laughs> they really didn't. And so it's like, yeah, it sets the you scope of what you're going to see. Because some of the battle scenes that come later yeah. are just spectacular. Which we will cover. In Which we series. will cover. Yeah. Um, but then again, some of the best scenes in the series are those little or smaller interactions just between one or two or three characters. Like it, at Second Breakfast? I love Second Breakfast. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing. What I love about the opening is piggybacking off of what you're saying it shows you what the series is about. It's about that struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, but it gives you the two ways in which it sh delivers that struggle. The very human, intimate moments and the large-scale epic moments. Ooh. It also shows the, 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 the extreme power imbalance. Between? Between good and evil. Very often having more power? Evil, almost all the time, is, is viewed uh, to be stronger. And it looks like it is set up to be stronger. But I yet, don't like thinking about it that way. But yet, the good guys always come out on top. So just because there is a massive force of arms on the side of evil doesn't mean that it is stronger, right? And that's part of what is set or it up. It has a really sick because, helmet. Well, he does have a he, really sick helmet. I mean, he looks helmet. cool as... Sauron <laughs> Sauron <laughs> Sauron's physical form is terrifyingly, wonderfully awesome. See, so Sauron is the eye. Yeah, that's what we said. Saruman is the wizard. <laughs> Who is not in the prologue. Who isn't in the prologue. Thank you. Um, no, Sauron, I mean, the, the way they depict him, he's like 10 feet tall. He's got that mace and he's just flinging bodies. And he swings that mace and 15 dudes go flying. Bro's got how, do you, how do you stand <laughs> up against that? And that's kind of part of what I'm talking about, that uh, power imbalance. Mm -hmm. It's a story about hope is what yes, you're telling yeah, me. Absolutely. It is. And you, you start seeing that. And just when, it, the line is, just when all hope seemed lost, Isildur took up his father's sword and cut the ring from Sauron's hand. Here is something I would like to do, if you all are interested. Mm -hmm. At the end of each of these, I would like to give you a rating of my personal level of interest in Lord of the Rings and how it has been swayed. Thus far, it's increased. If I start at 10%, I'm at a solid 13% now. There we go. I'm intrigued. 3% times 12 months. These are rookie numbers. we got to pump those numbers up. we got to do better. <laughs> I, I, ben? I'm curious. Get in on this. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just processing that Caleb just jumped from the Fellowship of the Ring to the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. 
Well, as we go through this, I think we're going to have a conversation off mics about what scenes will be coming next, but we're probably going to roughly go four, four, and four in terms of numbers of scenes from each film. It could be anything. Yeah, but we will get that figured out, and uh, we are thrilled that you will join us for The Lord of the Rings, The Scenes of Power. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the Storytelling Breakdown blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can reach our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Again, people, that is info at storytelling-breakdown.com, not underscore. You can also find our mini-series episodes for Campaign Diaries and RPG Decades at our website and where podcasts are found. The community update episode always represents a bit of a break in our schedule, or at least a pause between seasons. Season 4 of Storytelling Breakdown will be coming your way in February. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions Wayne Shout <laughs>